Journalist and author Albert Samaha talks to us about his book, Concepcion, Conquest, Colonialism, and an Immigrant Family's Fate. Samaha takes his family's immigration stories and intertwines them with the fraught history of colonization in the Philippines. His conversations with family members reveal the oppressive and violent chokehold on a nation that began with Spain and continued to flourish in the hands of the United States. Samaha spoke to us in September prior to the paperback release of Concepcion and discussed the depth in which colonization has done everything in its power to erase the history of a people and his mission to gather up those stories of his family and ancestors so the world may know the truth. Stay with us on another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And my name is Veronica. And today, this is a very special episode because this- but why? This is your one yes. of your birthday picks. Because September, I was born in September. And um, every time that September comes along, I pick a book that is about me or kind of about me or about who I am. So what better way to celebrate me being Filipino by reading Albert's book? And here we are. We're here with Albert Samaha. Albert is an investigative journalist, inequality editor at BuzzFeed News, and an author of two books. His latest book, Concepcion, Conquest, Colonialism, and Immigrant Families' Fate, was awarded a Widening Foundation Creative Nonfiction Grant and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Autobiography. His first book, Never Ran, Never Will, Boyhood and Football in a Changing American Inner City, was winner of the New York Society Library's 2019 Hornblower Award, a finalist for the 2019 Penn ESPN Literary Sports Writing Award, and adapted into the Netflix docuseries We Are the Brooklyn Saints. His reporting has freed an innocent person from prison, changed police misconduct laws in six states, and led more than a dozen companies to implement additional safety protocols for workers during the pandemic. He lives in New York City. His book, Concepcion, will be out on paperback October 11th. So what we like to do, I'm going to pass it off to Denny. She likes to put all of our authors in the hot seat before we get to the nitty gritty. So Denny, take it away. It's not really the hot seat. It's just like, you know, so we can get to know you better, like as if we don't know you already. But, you know, maybe you have left some some details out. Um, so starting with um, my favorite, kind of like my favorite person in the book, your mom, um, mm -hmm. your favorite memory of you and your mom together. So my mom, my mom and I are very different and very similar in a lot of ways. And my mom, she moved very fast throughout the world. And I like to move real slow throughout the world. So my mom would always tell me the story where 
when we were when I was real young and we were living in Paris at the time, I was like three years old. She was like what we were in like the subway and she like dropped her scarf. And I picked up her scarf and I was like, Mom, why are you forgetting your scarf? And she would always say how that was sort of the 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 moment she realized that I was like quick on things. Is that like I was a very perfectionist. I didn't want to lose anything. And that was when like our dynamic first started is that like she would move real fast and I would move real slow and we would kind of keep each other in check. So, I, I mean, I love that memory because I feel like it sort of would set the foundation for when like she knew what I was about and I knew what she was about. I knew that she was the sort of person that would like lose her scarf and she knew that I was the sort of person that would like make sure her scarf was picked up. Wow. And I feel like our relationship is just sort of like built from that moment. See, uh, see, that child was made for that mom. That's a that's a <laughs> right. This this next question um might be a little bit controversial. Um, who is your favorite Tito or Tita? Oh man, I mean all of them, all of them. I can't pick. Come on now, if they, <laughs> if they if they're gonna listen to this, I can't pick a favorite Tito or Tita. All of them. My my favorite Titos and Titas are. Auntie Ging, Auntie Lynn, Auntie May, Uncle Spanky, Uncle Bobby, Uncle Marlon, Uncle Paul, Auntie Donna. <laughs> I can keep going, but I know y'all have a time limit, so we'll stop there. <laughs> it's like the numbers up in here. Everybody. No. Um, I have I have to mention because my my parents are the same age, I think, as your uncle Spanky. And when I told him, like, Mom, like, do you know? Spanky, rigor, or dad, do you know this dude? My dad has never replied faster. Like that man doesn't text. <laughs> he texted me. He's like, oh, from BSD and company? And I'm like, yeah, we're talking to his nephew. Oh, and my dad doesn't care about my podcast. My dad doesn't, doesn't give two shits about all of this. <laughs> But when I mentioned you, and he's like, oh, what does he do now? Does he still sing? I'm like, dad, we're about to find out. But, you know, thank you for all your support. <laughs> <laughs> um, This is a question. To hear that. Yeah. A question from Veronica Smith, um, your all-time favorite football player. Charles Woodson. You guys know Charles Woodson? Who did he play for? He played for the Raiders. He was a he was a, a defensive back, a cornerback. So he guarded the wide receivers. And I remember I was eight years old, and I, I you know I played his position. He was the first person. He was the first defensive player to win the Heisman Trophy ever in college football. He played for Michigan, and I was a big fan of his. Yeah, I liked his style. Um, so that's my guy. It's, it's a bit of a deep cut. But like as a former football player, I need to have a deep cut answer. You know, I can't just say Deion Sanders. I can't just say Jerry Rice. You know, I got to have like a real deep cut answer. So it's Charles Woodson for all the football heads out there. Is that who you tried to fashion your style of playing? Absolutely. He was physical. You know, he was athletic. He now actually has his own wine company. Uh, he's doing a big, he's got his own businesses happening. You know, he's like, doing. he's in the Bay uh, doing the whole post-career business thing. If he listens to this, I would love to connect with Charles Woodson. But yeah, that's my guy. That's my guy. We're gonna have to see if we can make that happen. Thank you. <laughs> with, with a wine. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, he, we know that right now you are traveling the world, but there's still any country that you would like to see anytime soon? 
Yeah, oh, a bunch. So many. Japan. Japan's number one on my list. Um, I was supposed to go to Japan uh, in in April 2020, and that didn't work out. Um, so now, I, you know, I got to visit there next as a writer who writes about the colonial experience. You know, that's the one oppressor of the Philippines that I have not yet visited. So I feel like to really understand my people and my culture, I got to visit uh, the Japanese colonizers to see what it's about. The The thing about Japan, too, right, they were like the first global colonizer of color. You know what I mean? Like they were the ones who were in like the Versailles Accords and all that. Like, so I'm kind of really interested in like feeling that vibe to see what it's like. Look at Japan, always leading the way. Yes. <laughs> um, I went to Japan for my honeymoon and it like changed my life. Like, I, oh, how, how so? Like it, it kind of just like, I don't know, like this little quirks that I think that, you know, like maybe just being influenced by like because i grew up in the 90 80s 90s like anime or like how like food wise how i like certain things to taste um and i'm just like okay now it makes sense like i've always been attached to this the only colonizer that i was attached to was japan <laughs> let's just say that at least it was the at least it was the colonizer of color, you know what I mean? I'm a Francophile, so I'm a little ashamed of that. But you know, Japan, that's a better one. That's a better one to have. I d I don't know if there's a better one, but you know, I admit just <laughs> in this podcast that I was um like I'm just attracted to like how the ways of their people are. Hmm. So who knows, maybe somewhere in that DNA analysis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> Um, the biggest star that you've met or had the pleasure to talk to? What a question. I met Ta-Nehisi Coates a couple times, embarrassed myself in front of him. I met Barry Jenkins at a party once. So that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, that is a nice one right there. Yeah. Oh, nice he, was, he was so nice, too. He was so nice. I was I was hella fanboying, you know what I mean? And, like, asked for a photo. And, like, you can always tell the celebrities who kind of know how to interact with people. And he was so cool. He did not. He was so respectful. And I was like drunk and I was like, oh, my God, Barry, I'm going to get a photo. I love Lula, you know. But he was like, he was hella cool. He was hella cool. So uh, let's say Barry Jenkins. That's my answer. Yeah, that's that's what's up. That's on my wish list of someone that I wish that we could interview on the show right there. So that's cool that you got to both. Actually, both Ta-Nehisi Coates as well. I feel like those are two like very untouchable people. That if we should ever like drag them onto this podcast, it would be awesome. But um, we have you, and that is just as awesome, and it is it's just as special because uh, you have written a beautiful uh, narrative that outlines your life, which is done through the scope of uh, colonization, imperialism, and how your family Crazy. made the journey over to America. Um, so we are filled with questions for yes. you tonight. So. Um... I, I think I picked this book because I was like, oh, you know, we always have like immigrants, like stories. Um, and it's mostly like like Chinese American, Japanese American, even Koreans. But it's so hard to find Filipino immigrant stories that are actually reflective of like what we're going through. So after moving to the States, um, gradually, there was a yearning for me to reconnect with the Philippines because I feel like this history was lost in me. I feel like I'm forgetting it 
And so I feel like I'm I'm afraid that I'm forgetting like me because I grew up there and migrated here when I was um, in my teens. I'm so afraid that I can't pass on this knowledge to anybody because it might seem irrelevant information for them. Besides the search for identity, what drove you the most to write this story about your family while integrating the Philippines history as its key information? That's a good question. I mean, the the colonizers erased so many of our stories, you know, so I feel like the, the primary impetus I had was like to leave a record of my people, you know, I mean, I, I, I believe that everybody should write a family story, that everyone's family has meaning and says something about the world. I had a, a line in the book that, that I was particularly proud of where it was like, my family story is one thread in a vast tapestry. And I really think that's true. And like, I think everyone's story says something, particularly the stories of formerly colonized people, right? All of our stories have something to say about our history. And yet so much of that history has been erased, you know, like trying to do research on this book. It's like there is a cutoff point. There is a point at which I could no longer trace how far my family goes back. Right. I mean, I'm in Europe right now. And it's like this history goes back hella far, you know, and they and they, they because they maintain that because they weren't, you know, colonized in, in, in this millennia. And, and so I think for me, the main thing was like. I, I heard these stories from my elders for so long. I, I knew that there were interesting characters, interesting people, interesting events that, that really threaded through, you know, the history of, 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 of my culture, of our culture. And I just wanted to make sure it was on paper. It was that, you know, so much of our histories have been erased. I'm a writer. Let me put this on paper. Because if not me, who else will do it? So I kind of just wanted to record that history so that people, the descendants will know, you know, what our story is because, if I don't do it, maybe it gets forgotten. And 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 so it was sort of there was an urgency there that I really wanted to fulfill. And I I, I felt that too because it's kind of like, you know, like I I grew up studying portions of like history, and I felt like oh you know all of that I left in the Philippines and whatever's left in my mind how grainy or whatever I remembered that that's it and I'm like I was just I felt that urgency that she said when you wrote this book I'm like oh this is much needed because like who knows when this this would happen again you know and I'm very I'm terrified that it might not it might not like you might be it like I'm so terrified that it just might be you that would do it but you know um like I was telling Veronica this this is a history lesson that I never thought I needed to hear again um, I studied the narrative throughout my childhood, um, and it was fascinating to me because I loved Philippine history more than I loved all the other subjects while I was growing up. Um, how were you able to condense all of these information, like from the beginning of time in like a 300-page book, and what was the process of picking like, oh, this is the historical event that I would put in? And then this is maybe, you know, if you're really interested, you can branch out and read on your own. It, it was tough. I, I think what the conclusion I came to, I mean, I read a lot of books to prepare and all that and like do the, re the, the research and like doing that research, it became clear to me, I don't have to write the definitive history of the Philippines. That's been done. You know, Luis Francia, you know, is a fantastic Filipino historian who's done a lot of that research. And so in trying to consolidate how to narrow the narrative 
I figure, oh, you just I just tell it through the story of my ancestors. And so for me, it wasn't like a comprehensive history. It was like a story about my lineage, you know, woven in with the, the contextual history of that. So I, I, I kind of, my, my foundation, my rock was always looping back to my ancestors and building a story through characters, through people. And I mean, you know, every history is so vast. And, and, and uh, I've always kind of been a writer that um, takes pride in, in sort of telling the stories of individual people, of characters and their experiences. And to me, I sort of just apply that here, which is that narrow the history down to how does this history, how do these forces, economic, political, social, colonial, impact me, impact the people who led to me in my line? And so to me, it was just a cause and effect. You know, how did this history impact my people? And I just told it through that that lens. You you mentioned that you're in Europe right now, and I'm just curious. I don't know if it went through your mind. I know um, the Queen of of England has just passed away. <laughs> whatever. But when you think about where you are visiting in terms of this book that you have written that is about to come out on paperback and people, you know, soaking in all of this information. What do you feel when you're walking amongst this land that has basically created the scope in which you live in today and what your what your family has come from? A truly bizarre combination of admiration outrage and indulgence mm. so we, i was i was actually in london <laughs> the day the queen died and uh me and my friends were planning to go to a soccer game that weekend that got canceled and we were we were fucking pissed man Did he died like for real like what did she do for me and oh man what a trip i that entire weekend i was just fucking outraged the whole time because it it was like the the thing that was so aggravating was like this woman and her family's entire power and wealth was built off of the pillage of the colonies. And now everybody, media outlets, institutions from like America to Kenya are elevating her as some kind of hero. Mm-hmm. Or it's like, has she ever apologized for what she her people have stolen? You know, had has she done anything to roll back the impact of colonialism? Not to mention like the racism with like Meghan Markle and all that, right? So it's like the fact that there was just like universe, like everyone's like, she's apolitical, she's above politics. She's not above politics, right? Like it, to say she's above politics is to ignore colonialism as, you know, as something that exists in the world. And for people to just like, unquestionably honor her as some kind of hero like we would be walking down the street in london and replace it with a photo of her the same fucking photo one photo all across london you would be going up and down the escalators seeing 50 photos of her and it was it was it was outrageous in the literal sense like i was outraged i was angry i was in a bad place i couldn't enjoy my time there because I'm like, like, it 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 was a slap in the face. It was ignoring the history, and I think what what aggravated me the most was 
the way all of these like supposedly progressive institutions, right? The same institutions that were probably doing some like shit when George Floyd died, right? That were like presenting themselves as institutions of the people, right? All these brands, Peloton shutting down their classes because the queen died, you know what I mean? Like all these people and brands that present themselves as forward thinking and, and, and progressive institutions and people were just sort of like, oh man, we're in mourning. We got, you know, like, and it to me was just a a denial of history, of facts. I, I tried to watch The Crown a few years ago. The episodes where I dropped off, was it was like episode three or four. And um, Elizabeth and I think it was it's Philip, that was her husband. They did like their world tour across the African continent. And I think they were in Kenya and an elephant was on the loose. <laughs> and all of these Kenyans, who had grown up around elephants, had no idea what to do. But Prince Philip comes to the rescue and kills the elephant. I'm like, really? Is that what happened? Is that actually how the history went? That all these, all these Kenyan people grew up amongst elephants, had no idea how to kill the elephants? One fucking white dude in the scene who had never seen an elephant in his life knew how to kill the elephant. I was out. I was out after that. Fuck that. Fuck the queen. Fuck the queen. <laughs> I was right there with you. Um, and, you know, like, you t were t on, like, a tweeting rant when when the news <laughs> hit. And there was one post that you made that was in regards to retweeting BBC Africa was like, here are her greatest moments of times that she spent like in Africa. And I, I, I was in disgust because I'm thinking, here's a woman who died at 96 and in all, what, 70 years had the power to be able to be like, I'm going to flip all of this shit. I can just change everything and chose not to. And I think that's the thing that is the most bonkers about all of it is that here you were a person in power and chose not to change anything that you know these kings and queens that came before you also could have done and you could have set the standard but unfortunately you didn't um and and i'm sure the status quo will remain the same now that her son is there but we are not here to talk about them we are here to talk about you and you spent most of your writing career um, writing about the lives of others and the state of the world is and it's easy to place focus on others but it's something else to turn the magnifying glass on yourself was it easy for you to write about your family in this manner particularly your mother and what were their initial responses to you saying to them that you wanted to write about your family in this vulnerable way? When people ask me about that, a, a lot of people tend to assume like that it's harder than the kind of third person distant reporting that I do. I actually, I actually find it a little easier. Um, I, I think when, so I, when I wrote my first book, it was, a third person purely about like families in Brownsville, Brooklyn and them. And I would always like, whenever I write for people, there's always that little bit of guilt where it's like, this isn't my story. I'm just telling you, I just have to be able to tell someone else's story because they pay me to do that. And with like in, in, in like a small way in the back of my mind, writing Sean felt like a little bit of a men's where it's like, 
for much for most of my career, I've turned the lens on other people, other people's experience, other people's families. And I was like, well, who, you know, if I'm going to sort of put them under a microscope, how can I not put myself under a microscope, you know, and my, my family under a microscope? Yeah. So my, you know, my, when I, when I told my family about it, they, they, I feel like at first they sort of saw it as like this cute little project that I was working on. They didn't quite like get the scope of it. Um, but I, I had done a couple, I did like an essay. I did a pop-up magazine performance about Michael Spanky, about trips to the Philippines. So I had like written a little bit about uh, my family before. So they saw that and they, they kind of knew what it was about. But I, I think they're, to a T, every relative, their only like understanding of it was like, oh, Albert's doing this project. Let's support him. Let's like, you know, provide whatever he needs for it. And I don't think it was until like, even, I even think now, like most of them haven't read the book. They're just like, oh, cool. A story about our family. That's great. Thank you for doing this, you know? But like, I feel like it's really, it's my generation. It's like the, my cousins that are the ones that are like, oh, sick, this is amazing. But like my teachers and titas, they're just like, oh, the book came out. Very nice. Cool. You know, congratulations. But it was, it's like real low key for the family, which which is good, you know. But but yeah, like turning the camera back on like, you know, our my own life, in some way it felt like it felt like um, necessary in a way. Like I feel like for my own peace as a journalist, I needed to put myself and my family under the microscope because I've done that to so many other families that it only felt fair to, to, to do that myself. Um, but it was like quite a process because, you know, in a, in a sense it was easier because it's like the, like I applied the same journalistic principles and tactics that I applied to other people's families, except this time I had a hundred percent access. Mm-hmm. You know, I had memories, I had relatives that were willing to be interviewed. I had this entire historical context of my ancestors um and i think that's what made it such a rewarding project was that i was able to apply these tools that i developed over decades in my career onto a story that i was immensely passionate about and had full access to so it was kind of just the kid in the candy store where i was just like it was it was just such i i I really enjoyed the process of, of reporting it researching it writing it it was it was it was a joy it was a joy to just dig into yeah, I can. I felt the joy. Mm-hmm. It made it made me miss and also regret, because um, my grandfather was like the historian of my side of the family, and my mom's side as well. I was. I'm very. I'm more closer to my mom's side of the family. Shout out to my dad's side. Um, but <laughs> um, relatable. <laughs> he he passed away um two years ago, close to three years now. I mean, three years ago. What am I talking about? Um, three years ago and you know like when you were young they always be like oh make a family tree and like you know put put people in this like box and whatever he always had stories for us and I wish I could have gone deeper or I wish I could have taken it more seriously because now I see like the importance like you know like you you're like connected to like rajas and like princesses and like all of that but you know unless you dig deep you won't really know yeah you made me miss you made me miss him so I think I really found joy in like oh at least somebody had done it somebody was able to do it 
you should do a master class because I talk to my mom. I ask her, Mama, why are you married, Daddy? And she'd be like, I don't know. And that's <laughs> it. That's where she'll leave me. No information. And I just want to know, like, how do you pull information from people, especially on details of their own life um, that you are inquiring about? Like, is there like a little honey that you use to to pull that information <laughs> out? Or is it just it's just easier with your own family? Because like you said, they thought it was just a project. I'm definitely all honey. That's always my like interview strategy. It's like, you know, shoot them with a smile. But I'm I'm blessed to come from a family of storytellers. You know, my mom taught me how to tell stories. I grew up hearing stories from my mom. A lot of the deep ancestral history I learned from my great uncle Tomas, you know, who who had researched it before I did, you know. My great auntie Caridad wrote three books about the Filipino diaspora. So I like I come from a family that one has told our stories in the past and two respects and appreciates and values the art of storytelling and 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 you know you know the filipinos tell stories in the present tense you know we immerse in it we do accents we do voices we do dialogue and and so i think to my family it was a very natural thing where the only thing different i was doing was i was publishing it and getting paid for it you know and putting it on paper but like when it comes to just like the art of storytelling like my my everyone in my family, my cousins, machitas, machitos, they enjoyed it, you know. And I think one of the really rewarding aspects of the process was I feel like I got a lot closer with a lot of my elders because, you know, it was questions that I might not have thought to ask if I wasn't approaching it from a journalistic standpoint. But like, you know, journalism is a very intimate art where you're getting really close to people and talking with them and you know interviewing them and and you know you guys know that and. And and to do that with my own relatives who, you know, like I, I don't call my elders often enough, you know, maybe none of us do. And to be able to have a reason to call them and have a three hour conversation about what it was like to do Maguete in 1984 was very rich and rewarding. And I think they kind of enjoyed the act of passing along the story that they probably would have been down to tell, you know, at every Christmas party if like we weren't so distracted playing Guitar Hero, you know, so so. It, it it felt so natural just just talking to them about the stories. Um, oftentimes we wonder about the many lives we will create for ourselves and if the hopes we dream we started with will ever come to fruition in the midst of obstacles and adversities. When you sat down to write this book and you gathered up these stories of your family's journey from the Philippines to the States, what did you learn about what happens to dreams when you hold them too tightly or decide to let them go? I think what I learned is you adapt and your dreams adapt. You know, I think it it's a hard thing to acknowledge a dream deferred or a dream canceled, you know? And I think if you ask any of my elders, they would tell you that they lived their dream, they, they, that they lived their dream and that their dreams was the next generation doing even better than they did. So I think what I learned about dreams is that, you know, we they are malleable mm -hmm. and that you can take a different path on the dream that you initially envisioned for yourself and still believe that it is a dream for you. I mean, maybe this is a Filipino thing, right? We are like delusional optimists in many ways. And that's why we're always so happy and down with the cause. That's why we are the you know, most prolific labor force in the world because we go with the flow. 
and we assimilate and we adapt. And I think part of that, for my elders at least, was adapting their dreams to the realities that they were encountering and believing that, you know, everything happens for a reason. And I don't necessarily believe in that philosophy. I think a lot of things happen for no reason. But, you know, who am I to tell them that that's not the case? Who am I to say that that's not the case? I don't know. You know, it's beyond the realm of our knowledge. But but I think that's what it was. It's like the way, the same way that my elders assimilated into American culture, they adapted their dreams to fit into the realities that were progressing for them. So our history has always been political. Um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to it. And I think um, me personally, um, ever since I moved here, like, oh, you know, there it always it felt like there's bigger fish to fry almost like oh oh shit we have we have this here you know like i i came from over there and i thought i thought that i thought that everything was like we're we're fucked we're fucked in the philippines and i came here i'm like oh we're doubly fucked here (laughs) so you know do you keep do you keep abreast of like the politics over there um because it's tiring and then an unrewarding journey for most Filipinos. I do. I try to as much as possible. You know, I don't, I don't follow it as closely as I would like to, you know, um, I follow it from an arm's length. At the end of the day, it's not my country, right? I'm an American and, and, and that's the place I'm going to follow most closely, but, but I do follow Philippine politics and it, you know, it's, it's, it's the homeland. It's part of my identity and I want to understand it as much as I can. But I also know that I will never truly understand it because it's not where I'm from. So I do follow it. And I don't know. I mean, like the the ravages of colonialism continue to exist today, you know, and and, and all many of the ways that the Philippines, which is maybe the most naturally beautiful country in the world with like some of the nicest people in the world, some of the most delicious food in the world. Many of the ways in which the Philippines is, is fucked up is traced traced back to colonialism and the impact of that. And I think a lot of people, the sort of people that will mourn the death of the queen are the sort of people that would say that colonialism is a thing of the past and that, you know, these are fucked up countries because of blah, 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 you know. But the blah, blah, blah is our history. And I, I think one of the things, you know, one of the sort of themes that I hope to platform in, in, in my own writing is this idea that like history is a set of dominoes that like continues from, you know, there's no disconnect. There was no point at which the legacy of colonialism ended, just like there was no point that the legacy of slavery in America ended, right? It's all just like incremental processes moving forward and slowly evolving, incrementally improving, but still sort of deeply rooted in the last, you know, major trauma of the country. Um, So I follow the politics. I'd like to understand it even better than I do. Um, and I'm, you know, eternally curious about it. I grew up there. I still don't understand half of it. Like, I was, I was like very close on studying like political science, but I'm like, I don't want to live in rage. So here we are. Um, so I, I watched this like YouTube video maybe two days ago of now president, um, Bongbong Marcus. Um, he said in an interview with this entertainer host, her name is Tony Gonzaga. 
and you know they were chit-chatting and he was asked about the accusations and how the Marcuses were perpetuating historical revisions. He told her that, you know, what we studied in books are hearsays or maybe chismes, depending on who you ask. Because his father's government failed, it was the enemy that wrote history. So I'm appalled, but not surprised. Um, this video has 2 million views and counting. Um, so I was curious at the comment sections. I read it. They had praises for this man. Um, and they're talking about vindication and how accurate and honest this interview is or was. How do you feel about this uh, Filipino, almost amnesic trait that we have in response to power? It's always like, oh, okay lang. Like, we, we, would, we would forget. It's the product of 400 years of colonization. You know, like, we, the Philippines did not exist before the Spanish came, right? It was a collection of hundreds of tribes and villages. So there is no national identity, right? Jose Rizal said that the only thing we have in common is a common abasement, you know, a, call, a, a common uh, subjectivity, a common subjector, common oppressor. And I think part of the Bahá'u'lláh culture is like, when you've been oppressed for so long, you just want someone to just take over, right? It's like, you know, it, it, anyone, anything, any place that has been abused just wants someone to step in and be like, it's going to be okay. Let me take care of this. Let me handle this. And, and I think that's part of it, right? Like the, the, the Philippines. And I mean, part of this too is like, like, you know, as you guys know from the book, my family is like virulently anti-Marcos. But, you know, my family's from Manila and my family was upwardly mobile and like of uh, upper class in Manila. And for people outside of Manila, there was a lot of love for Marcos, you know, more more than I understood before I started studying it. And like in, in, in Mindanao, in, in deep into Visayas, you know, obviously in the Locos, they, they still have love for the family. And I remember I had, you know, I... I, I one politician I talked to in the Philippines, he was like, well, Marcos accomplished more than any other Philippine president. Well, it was like, yeah, well, he had 20 years to do it. You know, he had like five times as much time as any other Philippine president. But it's not like the people power revolution led to some dramatic changes that won people over to liberal democracy, right? Like it was a revolution of the aristocracy. It was the rich people that Marcos was stealing from that wanted to have their power back but it did not upend the system. So if you're a Filipino person that, 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 that grew up during martial law and that saw the revolution happen and then saw 20 years of, you know, what, like two presidents have been impeached since, mm -hmm. you know, Marcos went into exile. Like the, 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 what has happened in the Philippines since Marcos has not given people a lot of faith in liberal democracy. And so how can we expect people to believe in liberal democracy if they haven't been given any reason, right? Their lives did not really improve, right? The only lives that improved significantly after Marcos was taken down were the rich people who wanted a bigger share of the pot that Marcos was dominating. So it's, it, it, it's complicated and I mean, like, I mean, I think du you know, Duterte was complicated, right? Like, in a lot of ways, Duterte was anti-colonial, right? He pivoted away 
from the U.S. to negotiate more with China. You know, he was the first Mindanao president. He, you know, but then his drug war killed, you know, how many innocent people? You know, thousands of innocent people. So it's a complicated place where I think one of you know my problems as an American is that sometimes I will project sort of an American lens, right? The typical like right-left dichotomy that does not really apply in the Philippines, right? The, the Philippines is a place of tribal tribalism where you kind of look out for your people. And 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 as long as you take care of your people, that's all that matters. Um, Duterte like reduce the corruption, but increase the you know suffering for a lot of people. And what that means moving forward, what the Bong Bong administration will look like, I don't know. You know, like historical revision is a real thing that the Marcos family has been working on for many years. You know, in my book, I mentioned our tour through the Marcos museums in the Locos. And they were filled with lies and they were filled with both, you know, lies and exaggerations and, you know, selective truth. Right. So they've been planning this and plotting and, and, and building this, this false mythology for years now. And a lot of people buy in. A lot of people don't know better than to buy in. And I think even some people who don't buy in aren't necessarily opposed to Marcos because, I don't know, he's, a, he's familiar. Right. Like, you know, there's there's sort of nostalgia there. And also he has a lot of power and he has a lot of money and he is able to, you know, you know, money is power in politics everywhere, right. you know, especially in the U.S., especially in the Philippines. And that continues to dictate what's happening there. And I don't I mean, part of me, like, doesn't want to judge Bong Bong too soon. But then he starts saying things like this. And it's like, oh, OK, so you're just going to try to whitewash your own family's name mm -hmm. and that's difficult to watch as someone whose family was, was was heavily damaged by by the dictatorship yeah like i was i was watching it and i'm like is this fucking real like is are we like in 2022 what is happening but you know it's to me now it's kind of like what will you do denny like you're not even there like but i have like close fat close friends, close family that also greatly suffered because of that regime. And it, you know, it's fire. It's like a domino effect. It's that's why we're here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you plan to continue your family story? Cause now, now I'm invested, you know, I want to know all the things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Abs of course. Absolutely. It's now just going to be a permanent thing. It'll be like a TV series where we'll just continually yeah. update it. Yeah. Yes. My next book, my next book's probably going to like dive into my dad's side a bit more. That's been like a side that I've been hoping to like explore a little more. But, you know, there will be recurring characters from my mom's side who will continue to like pop up. I think it's just going to be a part of my career at this point where it's like I just will always write about my family and will always update what's happening. The last story I wrote at BuzzFeed was about my mom's living situation in San Francisco and all that. So I think I'll just always pepper in updates on my family for uh, for the for those who know, you know, those who know will know. Um, and and um, I can't imagine writing any other way. Yeah. Yeah. That's your question. So what do you have done in this book is combining my experiences as a young immigrant in 2010. I am both like you and your elders in this narrative have both lived experiences of your migrating barangay and your experience as a child in the United States. As cliche as it may sound, I felt seen that somebody finally wrote about this very niche topic in my head. 
a post-colonial Filipino body that strives to live a better life somewhere else whilst carrying all these traumas from said colonizers. Like you said, assimilation is our superpower. Do you, do you um, often wonder what would be the quintessential Filipino-American like in the next 10 years? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I appreciate what you said because that that's like why well, that's why I wrote the book was to connect with other Filipinos because I didn't see myself represented. So it feels good to hear what you said about feeling represented. Ah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think I, I think it will be a reflection of where wherever the world is in ten years, right? Because we are so assimilated. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the sort of scope of Filipino migration to the diaspora, right, from the Middle East to parts of East Asia to the States to to to, to your I was in Paris um, last week, and I and there were so many Filipinos that I just saw hearing Tagalog. I just would hear Tagalog on the bus and walking down the street, and it was just like beautiful to to, to hear. Um, so I, I mean, like the diaspora will continue to grow and reflect whatever the world reflects, and like there will be more mixed Filipino babies. There will be more Filipinos growing up in European culture and American culture and like African culture. And like, there, there are so many, I, I think the sort of future of the Filipino diaspora is sort of that there will not be a single Filipino identity. And I think for a while that sort of troubled me because, you know, like in the book, I sort of reckon with this lack of what does it mean to be Filipino? And I think at this point, I've just sort of embraced that there is no Filipino identity. Right there, there are Filipinos that affiliate with white culture. There are Filipinos that affiliate with black culture. There are Filipinos that affiliate with Chinese culture. There are Filipinos that are francophiles. Filipinos, you know, that are xenophiles. Like it, Filipinos that are just, you know, suburban Americans. It feels like the diaspora will just continue down that track of becoming more and more diverse, more and more globalized. Um, and I think that's what we can take pride in. I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool that there are Filipinos in every corner of the globe, even if it is a reflection of colonialism, and even if it means that we're all over the globe because our Philippine economy is not strong enough to subsist without, you know, um, money sent back from laborers all over the world. Like that, that is an unfortunate route to a truth that I think we can be proud of, which is that we have people all over the world. You know, and one day there will be a Filipino president of every country, you know, like in a hundred years. Um, so I kind of take pride in, in, in how our, our, our diaspora has has thrived all over the world and, and, and succeeded and, and, and fought for our rights in every corner of the globe um, and elevated our status in every corner of the globe. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where our diaspora will be in, in, in 10 years or 100 years. But 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 I know we will be globalized, and I know that we will continue to just expand. And 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 you know, within the last couple of years, it feels like there's been more and more sort of uh, representation on the scene, right? More like you know, we've got Pilo, the rapper. We've got like Manny Jacinto. You know, we've got we've got more and more sort of Henry. Yeah, I don't know if Henry Golding's Filipino, but you know, we like to claim a lot of people who aren't Filipino. <laughs> Filipino. <laughs> He's, oh, is he really? Oh, he's, he's like, <laughs> now I'm starting chismes. It's like, it's like it's like Nicole Scherzinger, you know, Shannon Softman, I think Bruno Mars. You know, we've got a lot of people out there. You know, Jabberwockies. You know, we got we got we got some rotation out there. We got some basketball. Jordan Clarkson. You know, we got a lot of basketball players on there too. 
Um, so I think we're just going to continue to like infiltrate popular mainstream culture in ways that people don't recognize until we've like taken over the globe. Yeah, because that was, I think, one of my like, you know, my constant worries for for my son. You know, I'm like, oh, would my like when I was reading your book, I'm like, oh, would my son write about, you know, like, would he think like like you when he's like your age about me when I'm like your mom's age? You know, it was just it like it really hit home because I'm like, what would he say about me? What would he say about us? Like, would I have failed him? you know, with not telling him what is like quintessential Filipino and like, who are you and where you came from? So it's, it's kind of like reassuring that, you know, there is hope that, you know, we, we can, we can adjust, we yeah. always adjust. And I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's beautiful to hear from you, because that was one of the recurring like thoughts in my head, like, you were kind of like my son, and I was like your mom, like, mm -hmm. in a, and like, you're, you know, my son is telling our story to the world that's how mm. I see that in my head so we have a couple of questions before before we let you go um and my question is when you reflect on your career and everything it took for you to be where you are in life what is the thing that you hold true to yourself about this moment trying to be present you know I, I think so much of like the career arc is like, I want to get to the next step and then I'll be happy. And then you get to the next step and you want, you're obsessed with the next step, right? And like, especially these days in like a social media era where it's like every time I go on Twitter, I just feel professional jealousy <laughs> of like all the cool shit other people are doing, you know? And I, I think the main thing now that I, and in my 20s too, you know, when you're on that kind of hustle grind, you're sort of so focused on what everybody else is doing. And I think what I want to focus on now in my career is sort of just what do I want to do, you know, and not sort of pursuing work that I think will reflect in any particular way about me or compete with anybody else, but just sort of what is the work that will make me happy. And I think I'm just trying to sort of enjoy the moment because it's so easy in your career to be so focused on the next step and to be so focused on like what is the destination but there is no destination right the journey is the destination and like you know we're young you know we're we're, we're alive and like the world's not going to last forever and so i'm trying to just like this was my first real like real vacation in a while and it's sort of part of this whole ethos after i finished this book i was like man i've been grinding for like 10 12 years nonstop, like working on books working like you know my jobs and I sort of maybe this is just like the uh, the realization a lot of us had in the pandemic and like the great resignation where it's like you know what's the point of like growing these trees if you're not going to eat the fruit mm -hmm. so i've been trying to eat the fruit more and trying to just like have a better work-life balance and trying to not just be so caught up in like how do i impress people how do i get the next job how do i like you know what i mean build my professional reputation and just, which is so easy to get caught up in, in like the Instagram, Twitter, you know, mindset. And, you know, I certainly get, still get caught up in that sometimes, but I try to remind myself to be present and to just fucking enjoy life and the moments and, you know, like spend the book advance and like go on trips and, and not be so caught up in where I need to be and just focus on where I am now and, and, and what makes me happy now. And, I, it also just feels like, you know, I don't think what I'm saying is particularly unique. I feel like that's the ethos we're 
moving toward, right? The zeitgeist is moving toward enjoying every moment on earth because it's all burning down anyway. So like, who knows when we'll just be nuclear annihilated. So let's just, let's just, you know, enjoy the time we have. And, And I'm lucky enough to be in a place in my career where I have the resources to enjoy the time I have. I can spend time in Europe. I can vacation. I can, you know, write about the things that I'm passionate about. And when I reflect on that, it's like, oh, I'm not only am I where I hoped I would be when I was in college, I'm sort of beyond that. And, and, and I think it's so easy to forget. Sometimes when I like feel myself taking it for granted, I put myself back in my shoes when I was like in college and think about how I imagined my future when I was in college. And, and was this and, it? Was this what you imagined? Basically, yeah. You know, maybe, you know, it, maybe like a handful fewer Pulitzers than I imagined. Mm. And like, you know, what I mean? like, but, but this is what I meant. I, I, I always dreamed of like writing stories that I was proud of and passionate about and writing books and like doing interviews on dope ass podcasts with cool people. And that's the life I'm living now. And I, you know, it's so easy to think about the next step, but you know, it, it's 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 so important to just try to remind yourself like you know this is this is this is a good place to be if you're in a good place to be right not to like not to discount you know the hustle and the grind of like elevating yourself but taking stock and reminding reminding myself that this is the life that I wanted when I was in college and and not being so focused on the future and just being present I, I think that sort of my my current goal and like the place I'm at in my career in my life. That makes me happy. You know, like I love hearing people say that they are living the life that they that they dream for themselves or even the the possibilities that they didn't even re- realize could be possible and then they're in, stepping into those things because like you said all of this is going to be burned down one day. Yes. And then we'll be <laughs> talking about I wish I should have could have would have and but here you are. We get to see it through your Instagram and your Twitter and everything. <laughs> See you living out this wonderful life that you work so hard in in creating. Um, before we let you go, we like to ask all of our all of our guests this one question. Um, we like to know what are your top five favorite books of all time, or what are the top five books that you or projects that you are most excited about that you want people to know that that are that are coming out, or you okay. can. Okay, I'm gonna just try to go off the top of my head. This is a hard question. I don't want to think too deeply about. So let's go. Let's go. All right, let's fucking go. What we got? Um, Pachinko by Benjamin Lee. Um, Sudden Death, uh, which is a book by um, Alvaro Enrique. Um, let me make sure I got the name right on that. This is the real hot seat question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got the name right. Alvaro Enrique. Um, okay, that's two. Um, Warmth of Other Suns, Isabel Wilkerson. Formative book for me. Uh, three. Random Family. Mm-hmm. By uh, Adrian Nicola Blanc. That's four. Hmm. Oh, Homegoing. Homegoing. Yagayasi. Love that book. That book, 
that that was like an inspirational book for my shit because it was like the like the generational sort of you know telling each that I this I this sort of structure of and I'm like a, a nerd for like literary structures of like books and shit and this idea of like each generation having its own like concise packaged right. story uh, was very influential for the way I structured my book so home going for sure. That's that makes sense now because I like intergenerational stuff like no matter it's like drama or whatever like fiction nonfiction, I am about that shit <laughs> and Ron, you can talk <laughs> about it. like the more complex the better for me and when I don't get lost in like oh who said like what happened in like you know 10 15 years ago <laughs> that means the author did it and I was I was in the plane. I was in I was in the bus. I was in everything <laughs> when you were talking about your family. Mm -hmm. So I really truly appreciate it from the bottom of my Filipino heart that you did this. And if this is you know the last, hopefully not the last like Filipino American book niche that I would read, I would be satisfied because you went back to the moment before we knew about the colonizers to the point that you know we've made it. And we've gotten big in America. So thank you so much for for this opportunity, for writing this book. Um, there's a lot of questions in my head as I'm like progressing in this adulthood that I'm like, what's going to happen to, you know, my side of the family? Like, I guess it's going to go away now, but it's not going to go away because it's here. It's going to stay. You just got to record it. It's on us to tell our stories. It's not us who, you know. That's right. right. That's right. right. Thank you so much for coming onto the show. You have uh, truly made this a gift for us. Um, we've been sitting on this book for quite some time, and it is a blessing to be able to speak to you. Um, and we hope that you enjoyed the rest of your evening or day or whatever time it is where you are right now. And hopefully one day, we never know, walking down the street in New York, and we are like, oh. I'll be like, cousin, cousin. <laughs> Hit me up. I'm in the streets. I'm in the streets. I'm in Brooklyn. I'm in Flatbush. Let's hang. Let's hang. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay, that's what's Let's up. Let's do it. This is so fun. I appreciate y'all, man. This is so fun. Thank you. You take care, okay? Be you safe. too. Take it easy. We hope you enjoyed our show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses. Our theme song that you're nodding your head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast. See you soon. Deuces. Deuces.